Oh my. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. I'm the Pete Callender. The number is 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Thanks so much for hanging out. I appreciate it. And uh, you can also hit me up on email, Pete, at the Pete Callender Show and on Twitter, at Pete Callender. Just looking at um, Washington Free Beacon, which is a national treasure. Uh, Noah Pollock reporting that they FOIA'd a bunch of emails. Uh, FOIA'd means uh, put in Freedom of Information requests, right? FOIA. And they've got emails that show the Biden administration worked with the National Association of School Boards on that infamous letter calling concerned parents domestic terrorists. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Get your kids out of these schools, people. I'm not sure how much more evidence you need. They are not your friends. They're not your friends. They're not aiming at the same target, let's say. Okay? They're not. There may be some very good people on both sides. Okay? There may be some very good people inside the K-12 educratic establishment. And they may be trying to do really good work. But if you really care about them, then actually increasing competition will uh, help them uh, uh, be in a better position to command more money. No, for real. That's what competition does. Better people will be able to get paid better salaries. So one of the things as there, there are, I just saw, um, I know I'm going to, I'm getting down a rabbit hole here. I, I recognize that, but. Saw this exchange. It occurred on the Twitter machine today. By the way, if you are on Twitter and you are interested in following along North Carolina politics, there is a hashtag that you should follow. It is uh, NCPOL. So North Carolina POL politics. NCPOL. Hashtag NCPOL. And if you type that into Twitter, you will see all of the influencers in North Carolina politics mixing it up except for a lot of lefties who have blocked people. Okay. Um, And I know this because they've blocked me. Like, over the years, (laughs) I've had a lot of people block me from NC Paul. Anyway, well, because they don't like it when I ask them questions. And I point out their hypocrisy and dumbassery. They just don't like it. And I get it. It's fine. Um, There was a series, like, for example, Travis Fain. Travis Fain is uh, one of the Capitol Press reporters for WRAL. WRAL is owned by Jim Goodman and Capital Broadcast Company, CBC, and uh, they uh, the, the Goodmans fund like all of these leftist uh, nonprofit groups that then you know influence North Carolina politics. They they hired the cartoonist that called the first black uh, lieutenant governor in North Carolina called him a member of the Klan. And oh, uh, no, by the way, that cartoonist happens to also be an eighth grade public school teacher in Durham, I believe. So, yeah, that company, the same company that also hired the former comms guy for two former Democratic governors. Seth Efron is his name to write the Capital Broadcast Company's opinion as if we need to know that. Thanks a lot. In an unsigned editorial They pick up the mantle for literally every single thing the Democrats want. And they rip on uh, the Republicans uh, when they're not 
carrying water for the Democrats. So that's what the Capital Broadcast Company is all about. One of their reporters, Travis Fain, um, who came out of print, I think. He used to work up in Virginia as well. And uh, every now and again, he'll unmute me when he needs something from me. <laughs> that's generally what happens. He'll send, he'll unmute me or send me an email. Uh, hey, do you know how to get a hold of, you know, some Republican? That's usually how that happens. And then he'll mute me again so he doesn't have to watch as I, you know, raise questions and challenge him on his uh, hypocrisy and his obsequiousness and uh, his, his deceptive practices and gaslighting. This is what he does. And he did it today with school funding because mentioned I was talking the other day about the Leandro case, the school funding case, and the original judge in that case, Howard Manning, he gave an interview. I forget to whom it may have been WRAL, but in this interview, he said that it's not like this, almost a direct quote, just off the top of my head from memory. He said, it's not like you can give teachers a 10% raise and then you'll automatically see a 20% increase in test scores. He, he says it's got to be, and he's patting his heart. He's like, they got to, you know, it's got to come from here. You know, the teacher's got to want to be there. That's, that was essentially his argument, right? And Travis Fain then turns that into some BS argument that Manning never made, which was, it's only about the money. Manning never said that people were saying it's only about the money. He's cautioning people who frame it like that. He's saying it's not. And Travis Fain's response is, well, nobody is saying it's only about the money. But, you know, I could tell you that, you know, management coming to you and they're like, hey, you need to work smarter, not harder. And, you know, we're not going to give you a pay raise. And then he proceeds to take up the entire argument as if he does believe that it's only about the money. And what Manning is saying is something that I have said, although I would like to think that I said it a little bit better, um, which is, I want to pay great teachers a lot of money. Great teachers deserve a lot of money. It's more of an art than a science. It really is. Communicating, connecting with kids, getting them to learn stuff that, let's be honest, most of the time, they don't want to learn this stuff, right? Getting them inspired to learn. That takes talent. And I want to pay the good teachers six figures because they're that good. But dadgummit, I refuse to pay the bad ones the same amount of money. And shame on you for trying to use the good ones as leverage to make me agree to pay the bad ones the same amount. And then we hear, well, we can't possibly figure out a way to do some sort of a merit-based pay system because we just can't figure out how to assess teachers properly. Like, it's literally your job to assess progress. It's literally your job to figure out whether or not somebody is good at what they're supposed to be good at, right? You're supposed to grade kids. You're supposed to mark performance. You're supposed to mark progress. You're supposed to be trained at doing this for other people, and you're telling me you can't do it for yourselves? I don't buy it. I think you're lying. I think you're lying because you want more teachers because you can then collect more union money. Oh, Pete, North Carolina doesn't have a union. North Carolina has an association. I call it a union. Don't call it a union. Union. That's what it is. It's affiliated with the NEA. It's called the, the North Carolina Association of Educators. It's an affiliate. We do not have collective bargaining. 
That's it. It's an association, though. It is a union. It operates as a union. And some of their uh, newer uh, leadership members actually have said as much. They've literally said, you know, acting like a union, glad to be part of this union. So they use the term, right? But they don't have collective bargaining rights. That's all. They can't enter into a statewide contract for all the teachers. They can't go on strike as, you know, one organized unit, that sort of thing. But it is an association, and it is an affiliate of the National Teachers Union. And the more members they get, the stronger they are, particularly inside the Democratic Party. Which, by the way, Roy Cooper came to town today towards some education facility. I forget where, but what did he talk about? Teacher pay raises. Kind of proving Howard Manning's point about it's not just about teacher pay, folks. Strong Mechanical doing the plumbing and the electrical work and um, HVAC stuff. And uh, we're all trying to help out neighbors in need with new or like new coats. It's the 704 Coat Drive, 704coatdrive.com. And uh, you can donate a new coat or a uh, slightly used like new coat. You know, maybe the kids outgrew the coats already. Throw those in the box. Um, or you can make a monetary donation to benefit the Salvation Army of Greater Charlotte. You could do it online. Also find the collection barrel closest to you at the website 704coatdrive.com. 704coatdrive.com. All right, so just looking through this Washington Free Beacon story. Just broke. I'm not sure. Oh, is the hearing over? No, it's still good. We're in the recess. Hang on. Where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? I hate getting old. Uh... Soon. Oh, okay. So the testimony shall resume. Oh, man, they're in a break. Oh, my goodness, they're in a break. And so this story just landed while Attorney General Merrick Garland is on Capitol Hill. He's testifying in front of the House something committee, and they're in a break, and this story has now just dropped. Perfect timing. This is what I mean. The Free Beacon. Washington Free Beacon is a national treasure, okay? The country, here's the story. The country's largest school board association collaborated with the Biden White House before sending a controversial letter calling on the FBI to investigate parents as potential domestic terrorists, according to previously unreported emails. The emails were obtained by Parents Defending Education. This was through a public records request, and uh, the Free Beacon got a hold of them, and the emails reveal. That the National School Board Association's president and CEO sent the letter to Biden on September 29th without approval from the organization's board. The letter said that the acts of some parents at school board meetings across the country could be considered, quote, a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. The emails also show that the White House asked the association for examples of threats against the school board members days before the attorney general created the task force of officials from the FBI and Justice Department to determine how to prosecute alleged crimes at school board meetings. The letter makes it clear that the White House was aware of the letter before it was released. But they gaslit us. They pretend they lied. They said they didn't. Right. They pretended that they were simply reacting to a letter from the school board's association when, in fact, they worked on it with them. 
It raises questions about whether the White House colluded with the association on the letter to prompt federal action. The emails also show that members of the National School Board Association's board of directors voiced frustration that the letter got sent out without their approval. <laughs> All righty, so that's where this stands. We'll see uh, what happens, uh, although I'm almost done here, but uh, uh, we'll see what happens uh, with the rest of the hearing. In the meantime, Parents Defending Education sent out more emails to all of the state school boards associations asking them for comment on the national board's letter. Now, there are only 47 state school boards because you'll recall when Barack Obama was president, he said the 47 states. And so three of them just had to go. That was how that happened. No, I'm kidding. It was 57 is what he said. Right? Didn't he say, wasn't it 57 states? I think it's, yeah, I think it was 57. Anyway, they sent out letters to all of the state school boards. Hawaii and Washington, D.C. are not members of the NSBA. And uh, Virginia and uh, Louisiana had already made their public uh, statements prior to. So that's why they only sent out 47. Otherwise, it would have been 49. Anyway, they asked um, two, two, two questions. We would like to know whether your organization was involved in the creation of this letter and whether you agree with its substance and tone. If not, have you contacted the National School Board Association to let them know? Can you please tell us how, going forward, your organization defines intimidation, harassment, and threat? And finally, do you plan to report individuals in your state to the U.S. Department of Justice, or do you believe that concerns can be adequately managed by local and state law enforcement? So, all right, more than two questions. There were several there. Okay, these are the questions they asked every school board association at the state level. Okay, as of October 18th, that's the latest I've got here, um, 18 different states have distanced themselves from the National School Board Association letter including North Carolina. South Carolina has not responded yet, but North Carolina's response is as follows. Quote, the North Carolina School Boards Association had no role in creating the National School Boards Association letter to the president. We were not privy to any drafts of or conversations about the letter prior to its release. The association does not agree with the tone or language in the letter, nor the request for federal agencies to intervene in our communities. I have written to both NSBA President Garcia and NSBA Interim Executive Director Chip Slavin, uh, conveying the association's disagreement with the letter's tone and contents. So there you go. That's North Carolina's response. Um, I mentioned earlier... I've got, yeah, here we go. Two stories. First, UNC Charlotte. How did this ever happen? I don't understand why these kids at Butler High School would have said that. Oh, there's no critical race theory going on in schools. I don't know what you're talking about. This is just a boogeyman of the right. Campusreform.org reporting that the National Science Foundation has awarded somewhere in the neighborhood of about $300,000 to UNC Charlotte to create modules that would train student teachers on the effects of systemic racism in education. 
Hey, guys. Um, just spitballing here. But uh, is it possible that maybe, just maybe, K-12 government education is the systemic oppression? What do you think? Is that possible? Might want to explore that one? Maybe, yeah, I mean, just run down that rabbit hole if you want to. Like, I'm not, no pressure. I'm just saying that uh, if you are, you know, looking for all of the systemic oppression and systemic racism, and you're looking at these systems as being complicit in these outcomes, then, I don't know, maybe the the one that's been around for like a century and everybody has to go through, maybe start there. What are you doing tonight? You want to hang out? I'm going to be hanging out on the WBT Facebook page. It's 7.30. It's Talktoberfest. Maybe we're watching uh, Brett Winterbull and Vince Coakley. They're going to be hanging out. We're going to actually be able to see them. They'll be on the live stream tonight. And uh, and I'll be in there just throwing out ridiculous questions for them to answer. No. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Although I, I'll, I'm going to be hanging out. So if you, uh, if you want to partake, come join us. WBT's Talktoberfest, 7.30. Go to the Facebook page for the radio station. And then at, about, at 7.30, there'll be a link that pops up. There's a video there. And you just click on that bad boy and you'll be able to comment. Obviously, you need a Facebook account. Obviously, I'm not terribly thrilled with that, <laughs> although I have several, but it doesn't matter. Um, UNC Charlotte, give it up. UNCC scoring a $300,000 grant from the National Science Foundation to teach student teachers on the effects of systemic racism in education. According to the grant abstract, UNC Charlotte is using the grant money to work with Pacific Lutheran University and the University of Houston to, quote, better support and advocate for the students in their secondary mathematics classes, especially students who identify as black, indigenous, and people of color. That's the BIPOC, by the way, B-I-P-O-C. It's not a rapper. BIPOC. According to the uh, grant abstract, the project began on October 1st. The project will also help teachers, future teachers, develop various curricula which are designed to serve students who identify as BIPOC. Additionally, the project's abstract states, quote, instructor guides will help navigate the context, content, software, and possible pre-service teacher resistance as they engage in difficult conversations about race. The goals of this research are to, one, design and implement two data modules to engage pre-service teachers in thinking statistically and discussing systems of injustice, namely systemic racism, and two, develop and refine instructor guides that focus on helping mathematics teachers, uh, teacher educators, implement these modules. Because math is racist. This is what we're teaching math teachers. To focus on helping math teacher educators. I guess these are teachers' teachers, the ones who teach the teachers, right? Would, it, like, would that be professors? The professors who teach the future teachers? So that's UNC Charlotte. Meanwhile, at NC State. Earlier this year, NC State required all students, faculty, and staff to take a diversity training. The NC State University mandatory training includes topics like white splaining, 
That's when you tell somebody something and you happen to be white when doing so. Uh, Toxic masculinity. Microaggressions. Unconscious bias. Also included is the topic of intersectionality, a core component of the highly controversial critical race theory. Many of these topics were found to be incorporated in a diversity, equity, and inclusion survey for students to fill out. Through a records request, North State Journal, nsjonline.com, the North State Journal was able to obtain invoices related to the training and many of the training materials. A.P. Dillon, the reporter on the story, writes that the training information resides on the website of NC State's University uh, Office for Institutional Equity and Diversity. And uh, the records show that uh, that's the office where the idea for the training originated. According to the website, all staff, faculty, graduate, and professional students are to complete two courses. Number one, managing bias. And number two, diversity. Inclusion in the modern workplace. Training is online only. Late last year and early 2021, undergraduates were also sent an email from NC State University's administration to complete an online diversity training course. The email message stating that the training was required for all. It appears now, though, that it is no longer mandatory. An update was added to the website for the NC State Office for Institutional Equity and Diversity. Quote, as of March 2021, students are strongly encouraged, but not required, to take the training. But only racists don't take the training. The update, I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that on the website. It's kind of implied, though. Um, The update was added during the same month conservative college watchdog outlet Campus Reform first reported on faculty and students being forced to take the training. Do you think that had something to do with the change in status of the course? Of course it did. Right? Of, of course it did. You make this thing mandatory, and all of a sudden, campus reform, another national treasure, reports on your mandatory BS training, and then all of a sudden it's, oh, okay, it's not mandatory. Our bad, not mandatory, totally voluntary. Until the heat, you know, wears off, and then, like, <laughs> then we'll make it mandatory again. The number of DEI departments like NC States, the number of these kinds of departments has exploded in recent years. DEI departments, by the way, for folks who are like super, super concerned about the rising cost of college tuition and all the college debt that you're racking up in order to get your, uh, you know, ninth century basket weaving degree, um, check out the DEI budgets, Okay. The DEI budgets uh, and these departments uh, employ a large number of staff. According to a new report, the average university, the average university, has 45 people tasked with promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. At some point, doesn't this get solved? At some point, does, is there not a campus out there that's like, hey, everybody, guess what? Mission accomplished. Right? Got rid of the racism through the anti-racism stuff. Got rid of the white splaining by getting rid of all the white people. Got rid of the uh, uh, the systemic bias. Right? We solved the problem. Like, is there ever a, a, a case, a scenario, an example? Is there any evidence that this stuff works? Do we have the stories anywhere of like, hey, 
I worked at this really racisty company. And then we brought in a DEI specialist, and we're not racist anymore. Does that ever happen? No, it doesn't, ever. And the DEI people will tell you it doesn't happen. It's all about doing the work. You'll hear that, you'll hear that uh, phrase a lot in these circles. Doing the work. It's like, you know, our grandparents and, and great-grandparents, like, died due to, you know, working their entire lives, like, grinding poverty kind of work. And, like, we're supposed to believe, like, doing the work. It's like, oh, I'm so tired because of the work. It's just, oh, I'm just so tired. Like, somehow or another, this is, like, equivalent. <laughs> no, it's not. Having conversations with people, yes, even about difficult subjects. It's not, it's not really work. Trust me. This is what I do. Diversity. According to a report by Jay Green, a fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy, along with James Paul, a University of Arkansas doctoral fellow, who looked at the bloated DEI departments. This is diversity, um, equity, and inclusion programs. These departments that are supposed to be, these are like, Actual departments with employees and budgets and stuff, and their whole goal is to make their campuses less racisty, right? So, 45 employees, people tasked with promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. That is the average, okay? Among the 65 universities that they examined, four of them are in North Carolina. Duke, NC State, UNC Chapel Hill, and Wake Forest. Duke University has 57 DEI employees, NC State has 44, UNC Chapel Hill 53, and Wake Forest with only 24, which is weird because with a name like Woke Forest, I'm kidding. The report suggests further research needed uh, is needed. Uh, hang on a second. The report suggests further research needed into what DEI offices are actually doing, and that much of the programming DEI personnel offer tends to lack diversity of viewpoints. <gasps> no. Really? I never would have I never would have guessed that. And this is my favorite finding. May have the effect of dividing more than including, <laughs> which is what the Harvard report found about like uh 2 years ago I want to say it was when they looked at these types of anti-racism programs, Harvard, which celebrates the fact that it put its people through this kind of DEI training. Their own research indicates that it is more divisive than unifying. Along the same vein, among Green and Paul's recommendations is for state legislatures, boards of higher education, and university trustees to investigate the cost and resources devoted to DEI personnel at the universities that they oversee and subsidize. And uh, this leads me to another piece. This is at The Atlantic, a piece by Ronald Daniels. Very lengthy piece. I'm not going to go over all of it. I don't have time. It is adopted from, or adapted rather, from uh, Daniels' forthcoming book called What Universities Owe Democracies. And uh, the headline is that universities are shunning their responsibility to democracy. Now, he was born in Canada. So, yeah. Hey, look, we all have our cross to bear. He says, when I first came to America in the mid-2000s, I expected, maybe naively, 
that this country would be a bastion of civic learning. <laughs> uh, do you know America? Okay. Surely the stewards of the world's first modern democracy would understand the need to cultivate an understanding of both its majesty and its mechanics, the enlightenment ideas that animate it and the institutions that make it work. But when my kids enrolled in high school in Philadelphia, they received only a weak introduction to any of this. That modest exposure, however, was far more elaborate than what many other children across the country receive. I do kind of think that if you're in Philadelphia, you're, you're probably getting a, like, probably, I would think you would get more of an education about, you know, the founders. Don't you think so? In Philadelphia, like of all the cities, that would be the place, I would think. The dearth of civic education is corrosive, he says. According to an AP GFK survey, spanned, uh, what would this be? Gosh, 40 years? The sh- or 30, uh, 94, uh, 30 years. The share of American adults who say that staying informed about current affairs and public issues was, quote, not an obligation that a citizen owes to the country. Not. 20%. In 1984, only 6% said that. By the year 2014, one out of five say they have no obligation to stay informed about current affairs and public issues. Can we trade them? Like, I'm open to a trade. Are there other countries out there that are interested in trading? American universities in recent years have shunned responsibility for an education in democracy almost entirely. There's no single reason for this. The structure of modern universities, one reason. Debates among academics over uh, how a shared vision of democracy should be taught. Right? This gets into the critical race theory area. Because if you... Uh, let, let's say you take sort of a, you know, a Hillsdale type of approach, right? And you're like, hey, we want to educate our kids about uh, civics, about the founders, about the Enlightenment principles. You're going to get pushback from people who are like, that's all racist. This country was founded on racism and it needs to be torn down. Right? And, and then there are people that say that such a vision of the founders never even existed. And so it shouldn't be taught. Um, he goes on to say later that the nation's founders recognized that indifference, ignorance, and prejudice could tear the republic apart. The U.S. in 1790 boasted fewer than a dozen colleges. And one popular idea shared by many of the founders was to create a national university. No one believed more fiercely in the project than George Washington, who devoted a fifth of his inaugural State of the Union address to this very idea. A national university never came to fruition in quite the way that Washington had envisioned. But in the decades after his death, hundreds of colleges sprang up across the American landscape. Think of it like a school choice idea, right? Washington's idea was like, we have to have a national college, a national university or something like that. And it didn't happen that way. But instead, we had choice. We had all these other colleges pop up. And then people got to pick where they wanted to go. And under a school choice system, that's how it would work. So a K-12 school choice voucherized system would look like, essentially, the college system. Because that's what we have, right? 
I mean, yes, instead of a voucher, you get student aid, for example. You can get grants or, or loans, too. But it's a choice system. And certain states give you much lower cost, like North Carolina does, right? If you're a state resident, you get a much lower tuition cost than an out-of-state applicant. That's a voucherized program, folks. So everybody who's like, oh, this will be the death of, you know, of education in the state. It would, you know, destroy or dismantle education. I'm sorry, are the universities dismantled? Well, I mean, yes, from within by the leftists. But is that like these university systems, it basically runs on the same idea. So does Medicare. I've said this before. It's a voucherized system. Virtually um, all of the colleges at the founding, after the founding, offered a standard curriculum that culminated in a moral philosophy course, typically taught by the college's president. That course was designed to give students an opportunity to exercise moral agency, as well as personal autonomy and debate skills. Core capacities of democratic citizenship. By engaging with serious philosophical and political questions, we armed citizens to be stewards of the nation. This is so... Oh, hang on a second. The Bachelorette promo is on. All right, yeah, yeah. There we go. All right, stay tuned. Brett Winterbill's up next. He's also going to be at the Talktoberfest live stream tonight at 7.30. We'll see you then. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.